Hey everybody, quick note about the next two episodes. I originally written them as one great big two and a half hour episode. Yeah, I was totally going to do that to you guys. But my 11 year old computer had other ideas. The files were so huge, any attempt at mix downs and processing were taking forever. And my computer sounded like a helicopter right before it plummets out of the sky. So I've broken it into two episodes to be released simultaneously. Just keep in mind they weren't written that way and I haven't had time to go back and change everything around very much. So the material will be a little lopsided with most of the contextual stuff and the silly bits coming in this episode and the deep dive on Calvert's time in Ireland coming in episode five. This wasn't an artistic choice, just a technical necessity. And I'm sorry for any confusion. Really, it's probably for the best because I'm not sure listening to me for two and a half hours straight technically complies with the Geneva Convention. Anyway, here's episode four, Colonial Blueprints. Top of the morning to you. This is a history of Maryland. Episode four, Colonial Blueprints and Irish Interlude. A younger, wiser me once said, there's no way I can do Irish history any justice in this short a space of time. And today, I'm going to prove me right, as I ignore my own advice and faceplant into the quicksand-filled rabbit hole that I've spent the last couple months or so struggling to extricate myself from. Sometime around May 1625, Sir George Calvert and most of his family and retinue of servants and retainers cross over to his estates in Ireland. He'd spend the next couple of years there, setting down roots, marrying off daughters, and getting involved in the local political scene. As with the last episode and the next, we're still in that hazy and mysterious period between 1625 and 1627, where specific sources on Calvert and his colony in Newfoundland are just criminally threadbare. But I've managed to dig up a few interesting details on his estates and his time in Ireland. I also found a great new source pertaining to Calvert and his children, so we'll be doing a bit of catching up with the rest of the family. And we'll delve into the super spooky mystery that is Joan Calvert, George's new wife, and the First Lady Baltimore. We'll also finally receive word back from Sir Arthur Aston about his visit to the Avalon Colony by way of Father Simon Stock. What will the verdict be? What will this new and trusted perspective on the viability of Avalon mean for Calvert's Newfoundland Colony? That will be the meat of today's sandwich, but of course we're going to be encasing it all in a generously buttered and well-toasted bun of historical context. Sir George Calvert is now a Catholic, English, Irish Baron. What the heck is that all about? How does that even happen? And what did the regional politics of his new base of operations consist of? Well, I kept having to crack open a book to find out. Because I don't know about you, but my understanding of Irish history is a bit spotty. All I know is that there were a bunch of battles, massacres, and famines in some rough order of sequence, with Catholic Ireland versus Protestant England as a thematic glue that binds it all together. I guess that's what happens when your primary source of Irish history is Shane McGowan lyrics. But when you actually get into it, there is nothing simple or straightforward about Irish history. It is a blender of peoples, religions, and hyper-localized, family-based political connections and conflicts. And all that's before you even get the English crown coming in trying to bring it all under their control. So I think it's worth setting the scene in Ireland at this time, and letting Irish history unfurl in the background of our podcast from now on. The Calverts are Irish barons, and will be for generations. 
Irish politics will affect Maryland in subtle and not-so-subtle ways for centuries to come. Subsequent migrations of Anglo-Irish, Scots-Irish, and Gaelic-Irish will leave a legacy of historical actors, cultural influences, and place names in our little colony-slash-province-slash-state. And it all starts here. Now, quick disclaimer, this still will be a very rough overview, and it will be from a decidedly Anglo-centric point of view, at least for now. Sorry about that, that's just the nature of the beast when you're focusing on the English crown's policies in Ireland. Because as we'll see, Sir George Calvert will be up to his poofy collar in said English policy in Ireland. Namely, the plantations. Most histories of the plantations focus on King James I and his Ulster plantations. Because it's still relevant. It's why we have a separate country called Northern Ireland today. But the roots of the policy actually go back to Henry VIII. There were English plantations all over Ireland before and after Ulster. And following Calvert gives us a chance to look at a few of these lesser-known plantations, namely the ones in County Longford and County Wexford. Plantation in this context is roughly synonymous with colony. And this is yet another way Ireland affects the whole theme of our podcast. Because Ireland will be England's first overseas colony, and it will help set the tone for future colonization in the Americas. Now that is a bit of a historical trope I'm wheeling out there, and not everyone agrees with it, and we'll explore that angle too. But I think there is something to it, and not just because it conveniently grants me the thin veneer of being on topic in a podcast that's supposedly about Maryland history, but mostly because of that. If the titles and sheer length of today's podcast aren't an obvious enough clue, this is sort of a double episode. On top of completely losing my way in the labyrinth of early 17th century Irish history, and my attempts to place Calvert within it, I also ended up having one of those rambling conversations with myself which got totally out of hand and probably should have been its own supplemental episode. The story of Maryland is a colonial one. So I'd like to take a bit of time to turn and face the subject of colonialism itself, its historiography, and its historical context. Specifically, the ways in which political and cultural realities in the old world, at the dawn of the European Age of Discovery, affected the way things played out once they sailed over to the New World. The colonial blueprint, if you will. And I'd like to do this using perhaps the most colonial conquesty example of them all, 16th century Spain. And then I'll attempt to compare and contrast that with English colonial endeavors in Ireland and the ways they had an effect on British colonialism in North America, with mixed results. This segment will be a personal view, a little more philosophical, interpretive than usual, and thus a little more subjective than normal. So all the usual caveats apply about listening to a fishmonger for his unsolicited historical perspectives. If this doesn't sound like your type of thing, and you just want to skip ahead to the actual episode, it's easy enough. Just move that little dial on your pod player to about the 33-minute mark. Cool? All right. Cue the fade-in. Colonialism is a term which these days has reached toxic levels in the negative connotation department. And there are a lot of good reasons for this. It is inextricably linked with fire and sword, racism and slavery, economic and environmental exploitation, mass movements of dislocated and relocated populations, vast imperialistic experiments in social engineering, and the arbitrary drawing of political boundaries which can still act as flashpoints for violence to this day. Think of the Congo, Iraq, Northern Ireland, 
Israel-Palestine, the Ravens versus the Steelers. And up until about the 1970s, a lot of the historiography on the topic was still heavily mired in a sort of national greatness narrative. Look at all the great things we have achieved. Look at all the civilization we brought to the world and bravely maintained today. The reality of how things actually went down was being reshaped to serve a modern political purpose. And there really needed to be a hefty counterweight to that. There was a catastrophically ugly side to colonialism. And we won't be shying away from that ugly side. No, I'll be milking all that death-suffering despair for all the downloads I can. But I'd like to try and actually understand the motivations for and the mechanics of colonization. To get into people's heads at the time and attempt to put things in some sort of historical context. Because if the pendulum swings too far into knee-jerk western civ bashing, it just becomes another way history is used to serve a modern political purpose. It oversimplifies the reality and limits what we can learn about history. And maybe, just maybe, what we can learn about ourselves. And that's my personal bias, just to lay it out there on the table. I'm coming at all of this from the angle that colonialism is a human phenomenon. I know it tends to get associated specifically with Western Europeans and boats, because for most of the last half millennia, it was associated with Western Europeans and boats. And because we're all still dealing with some of the knock-on effects of that particular expression of colonialism, all these years later. But the basic definitions for the term applied historically to just about everywhere in the world at some point or another. It's something that people and states do when they have the organization, the power, and the impetus to. It tends to be a logical extension of security interests and economic interests for any expanding state or mass migration. Nor do I believe we've evolved out of these tendencies. The specific way we go about it might be different. The rhetoric to justify it may be different. But it's hard for me to look at, say, China's state-sponsored westward expansion into the Xinjiang province and not see colonialism alive and well. Even the good old U.S. of A. technically owns a few islands we don't call colonies anymore. Not to mention having the most kick-ass military on the planet, with installations in over 70 countries to protect and project our political and economic interests throughout the world. So, I don't want to get too judgy about what people were getting up to 400 years ago. But sometimes, from the safety of my couch, centuries after the fact, in a country with one of the highest standards of living in the world, and a house built on land that was once roamed by the Susquehannocks, I ask myself, why did this great cultural collision between the old world and the new generally turn out so crappy for a lot of people? And did it have to turn out that way? Well, there are obviously a zillion angles, answers, and perspectives to that question, put forward by people who actually know what they're talking about. But unfortunately, you've stumbled onto my podcast. And the way I see it, at its core, this thing was never going to be pretty. Even if the first contact between Columbus and the Taino natives had been based on nothing but the best intentions. In the name of the King and Queen of Spain, I claim this land to not be ours, but yours. I'd also like to declare my respect for your rich and unique indigenous culture. Here. Take these glass beads and trinkets. We expect nothing in return. Should you ever wish to dispose of any surplus of fair trade coffee or non-GMO agricultural products, please drop us a line at your convenience with a price that's good for you. Now we're going to get out of here before we leave any more of a carbon footprint on your precious and fragile ecosystem. Even if this is how it went down, Columbus and his crew and the innumerable other European explorers, merchants, and settlers who followed brought with them microbes, 
viruses and bacteria to which the native population had no real immunity. And it would be like a scythe cutting down millions, radiating out into the Indian populations who wouldn't meet Europeans for decades or even centuries. There's plenty of debate about the actual numbers involved in pre-Columbian native populations and what percentage of them died as a result of these pathogens. But some estimates go as high as 80 to 90% of the population of the Americas being killed by these new diseases. We'll never know for sure, but at the very least we're looking at black death levels of suckiness. Probably worse. And it might be the worst humanitarian crisis in history so far. All this just from... Hi, we're the Europeans. You guys know where we can find any gold or beaver pelts? But as we all know, the European Age of Discovery and its subsequent colonization efforts brought with it some more hands-on forms of awfulness. Again, I hate to be a negative Nancy, but I feel that this too was inevitable. It was a violent, fractious, and desperate age worldwide, including in the Americas before Europeans ever set foot there. Maybe it's just cynicism, or a lack of imagination on my part, but I'm not sure what a truly peaceful scenario of New World Discovery would even look like at any point in history. But if you are looking for a less violent, more equitable cultural exchange between the old world and the new, then the Spanish coming over in 1492 is maybe not the best scenario. We all know 1492 is the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but it's also the year in which historians wrap up the previous eight centuries of Spanish history in a neat little bow under the convenient moniker of the Reconquista. Back in the early 700s, an army of Muslim Arabs and Berbers under the Umayyad Caliphate crossed from North Africa into the Iberian Peninsula, where Portugal and Spain are today, and proceeded to conquer and colonize most of it. But a few tiny Christian kingdoms and polities in the north would hold on and eventually expand, pushing the Moorish rulers back towards North Africa. And it's in 1492 that the last Muslim territory on the peninsula was reconquered. The Reconquista itself can be a controversial concept, but there definitely seems to have been a sort of manifest destiny among many Christians at the time to eventually take back Hispania, i.e. the whole Iberian Peninsula, for Christendom. There are references to doing so in the 9th century, and by the 12th century the dynamics of crusade and jihad are fully ingrained in the cultures of the region. By the end of the 15th century, reconquest is a genuine unifying political force for the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon. Much of anything else about the topic, whether it's pro or con reconquista, is heavily influenced by later politics and ideologies vying to be the one true way to interpret the past, as it always has been and as it always shall be. I'm going to try and steer clear of those politics, I just like the term reconquista because it's an easy way to bundle centuries of insanely complex and convoluted political history into a nice little package. Just keep in mind, it's for convenience. It was actually a ridiculously long and winding road. For one thing, the Moors had been on the peninsula for almost eight centuries by 1492. And that's one of those tricky aspects of colonialism. In groups, we tend to view it with the moral clarity of an invasion. This is our land. You're the aggressor. You're stealing it from us. You need to leave. But the second that first generation of colonists is born there and grows up there, the story really gets more complicated. After a few generations, these colonists, if that's even the term to use anymore, are fully invested in what they see as their homeland. After 800 years, the Moors were as Spanish as anyone. Throughout most of that period, Christians fought Christians, Muslims fought Muslims, 
and various factions of Christian and Muslims worked together against other factions of Christians and Muslims. And there was a relatively huge Jewish population who'd been there for centuries as well. Throughout its history, one of the defining characteristics of what would eventually become Spain was just how regionalized and decentralized it was politically, ethnically, religiously, and culturally. And this was still the case when Queen Isabella of Castile married King Ferdinand V of Aragon and brought together two of Spain's most powerful Christian kingdoms in 1469. It was still the case when they conquered Granada, the last Moorish stronghold in Spain, in 1492. And maybe it's because of the reality of this disunity that the monarchs were so keen to enforce some form of unity to help maintain control. And the main instrument of this would be the Catholic Church. Spain would become deeply Catholic, even by the measure of those deeply religious times. What this ultimately meant for large populations of Muslims and Jews living in the Spanish kingdoms was convert now or leave now. There's nothing new in Europe about this sort of enforced religious conformity. And it will remain a major theme of this podcast throughout the 17th century. Nor is there anything strange at this time about legally hobbling conquered cultures. Just look at how the Welsh fared under English law up until about the 16th century, for one of just a gazillion examples. But because the Moors were North African, because the Jews were seen as outsiders everywhere in Europe, even though they'd been there for centuries, this enforced conformity takes on a certain racial aspect, at least from a 21st century perspective. The idea of blood purity became an important one, being able to trace your ancestry back to purely Christian European roots as far back as possible. So on top of the usual class-based hierarchies of peasants and burghers and nobles, there are now all these new legal categorizations and subcategorizations based on race and religion. There were the Moors who had converted to Christianity, the Moriscos, the Jews who had converted to Christianity, the Conversos. There's even a category of Christians who had converted to Islam under Moorish rule who now had to convert back. And the one thing all of these categorizations of new Christians had in common is that Ferdinand and Isabella didn't trust them. Despite converting, they were still seen as a spiritual and political liability. In short order, laws are being made to enforce cultural uniformity. Moriscos revolt against this as a step too far. They lose these revolts, and the cultural clampdown will come down even harder on them. And this is where the Spanish Inquisition comes into play. It's developed to root out these so-called Catholics who are secretly still practicing their heretical beliefs and who still align themselves with foreign Muslim enemies. And if they get to seize a little property along the way, well, you know, bonus. And while I'm on the subject, the view of the Spanish Inquisition has received a massive makeover in the last few decades. Gone are the hyperzealous mustache-twisting maniacs condemning tens of thousands to the pit in the pendulum. Now they're seen more like clerks of a bureaucracy beholden to various forms of due process for the accused. For the context of the times, you could actually do worse than the Spanish Inquisition. You know, a random witch hunt up in Germany or the Portuguese Inquisition could be way harsher. But I think the interpretation of this can be taken too far and sometimes misses the point. I like to think of myself as a warrior for the natural human rights of free thought and free speech. Give me liberty or give me death. And though I disagree with what you say, I would die for your right to say it. But in reality, you only have to take one or two people from my town and burn them alive in front of me, and I'll probably chug any Kool-Aid you hand me. 
deaths and arrests can be tallied up. But what isn't so easy to quantify is the fear and the chilling factor this had on everybody else. The Inquisition were a sophisticated and ubiquitous tool of fear and control that anyone can find themselves answering to if they crossed a certain line, and it will eventually be following the conquistadors into the Spanish New World. There are other ingredients to our 1492 Spanish stew. Land is the basis of wealth. Wherever there are new lands to be conquered, there are adventurers who want to get their hands on some. These are often soldiers or younger sons of the nobility and gentry who won't be able to inherit their family lands, and they have to get out there and make their own way. Also, soldiering is a business decision. It might get you killed, but it also might give you some economic opportunities you wouldn't necessarily find being a full-time fisherman or landless tenant. This sort of medieval power dynamic is still pretty much the rule throughout Western Europe. But in Spain, 800 years of gradual expansion and taking lands from the Moors and repopulating it with your own people seems to have formalized a certain process and created a machine of expansion. These privatized armies would seize some land in the name of the king, and the lord of this land would have all sorts of special powers and rights. Monarchs were usually cool with this because warfare and colonization were horrendously expensive, and it incentivized someone else to go do the conquering for them. Some of these adventurers, working for the Kingdom of Castile, had already been busy conquering and colonizing the Canary Islands off the west coast of Africa, and they would become an important jumping-off point to the New World. The Canary Island had its own indigenous population, and the Spanish would implement a system they'd been developing over the years of fighting the Moors and taking their lands. It's the encomienda system, which has its own nuances, but it's a lot like feudalism. There's a lord, an encomendero, often one of the conquerors of the land, who are granted the right by the crown to receive tribute from the natives of a certain locality. That tribute usually takes the form of labor. Like feudalism, there's supposed to be a symbiotic relationship here. Peasants, or in this case the natives, work, but the lords provide protection and education in Christianity in return. In other words, forced labor and forced conversion, to pay for your lord's lifestyle and his personal army all to protect you from potentially being subject to some other lord and his personal army. Finally, there's slavery. In the Mediterranean, post-ancient Rome, it never really went away or became subsumed by serfdom like it did in a lot of other places in Europe. There were huge slave markets in North Africa. There was a legal framework for the institution throughout the Mediterranean. Both Christians and Muslims engaged in it, it was one of the basic prizes of religious warfare in that region. Slavery doesn't yet have a specifically racial component to it. It's more religious at this point. You know, Christians couldn't enslave Christians unless they had rebelled, that sort of thing. So when Spain hits the New World, they already had a whole system they'd be bringing along with them. They'd built an apparatus of expansion. Thanks to all that competition in the Mediterranean, Castile and Aragon had become maritime powers. So they had the ability and the impetus to travel those distances across the Atlantic. And those adventurers who had conquered lands in the name of the king in Spain and in the Canary Islands during the Reconquista, they would become the conquistadors when they started carving up the New World. They had centuries of experience in exploiting local political situations to their advantage. This is the oft-forgotten factor in the early European successes in the New World. It isn't just about disease and superior technology. Cortes conquered the Aztecs with the help of thousands of native allies who hated the Aztecs. Pizarro benefited from an Incan civil war when he toppled that empire. Jamestown barely hung on, 
If the Powhatan had been a little less fractious, they might have swept the English into the sea right then and there. Plymouth made essential allies thanks to the local native political atmosphere. And the Maryland colony could thank its lucky stars the Yukamako happened to be looking for friends with guns when their first settlers arrived. Spain also had a ready-made hierarchy and system of control and labor extraction for conquered provinces. They were already rabidly Catholic with a system of compulsory conversion. There was a precedent of racial categorizations and subcategorizations that affected your legal status. And slavery was already a normalized thing within their legal system. One thing the New World version of these systems would not have so much of would be checks and balances. One of the legal checks against the power of the conquistadors and the encomenderos is the monarch. It's the monarchy that is the source of legitimacy. The crown grants the titles and owns the land. And there is technically a system of petitioning in which natives could theoretically write the king of their grievances. But the Spanish New World is huge and far away. And there are so many layers of bureaucracy. Abuses were rampant. So knowing all this, how is it supposed to turn out anything but ugly for a lot of people when the old world meant the new world? Doesn't make it any less sucky for those that had to go through it, but I think it's important to see the basic mechanics of the machine. Now my point here isn't to blame everything bad about colonialism on the Spanish. I'm not trying to add to the black legend here. I think Spanish history generally gets shortchanged in the English language, and I'm not trying to add to that. Spain just seems like such a clear example of how contextual elements in the old world transferred to the new. Spain's Reconquista informed the way that they'd approach colonization in the Americas. And a lot of historians draw similar parallels between England's attempts to subdue Ireland and their own colonization in the Americas. They see England's colonial endeavors in Ireland as a blueprint for their eventual colonization of the Americas. And I thought to myself, what a perfect segue into the topic of today's podcast. This is going to be great. Unfortunately for me, this isn't an uncontested viewpoint. After writing 80% of this segment, I just so happened to pick up Ireland in the Virginia Sea by Audrey Horning. And the main point of her book is that, no, Ireland was not a blueprint for American colonization. And she goes about underscoring all of the differences between the Irish plantations and the American colonies. And it is hard to use Ireland as a reliable blueprint for American colonization because there is hardly a singular system in use in any of the English colonies. They are a hodgepodge of experimental frameworks reacting in different ways to different localized circumstances. And most of them failed miserably. Also, in a lot of ways, colonization in Ireland didn't necessarily predate American colonization. It's really concurrent. It's more like there's something in the air that's happening on both sides of the Atlantic simultaneously. And Horning makes the argument that it's really the other way around. Early New World colonization actually had more of an effect on Ireland. Expensive failures like the Roanoke Colony made colonizing the much closer and proven environs of Ireland more appealing than it had been before. And I think many of her arguments are pretty convincing, which sucks for me, since I originally built this entire episode around the idea of Ireland as the blueprint. But as long as you're willing to paint in very broad strokes, the Ireland as first colony trope does have some merit. Regardless of whether Jamestown's fort or building layout were directly influenced by those of the Munster plantations decades earlier, the intent of colonizing Ireland dates back to Henry VIII at the latest. Irish colonization is earlier. 
Maybe England doesn't have a singular colonial blueprint like the encomienda system, but maybe their recipe for success is their tendency towards variation and experimentation. Ireland would be something of a laboratory for colonialism, with each successive plantation trying to learn from the successes and failures of the next. Much of the colonial rhetoric behind the Irish plantations or North American colonies was identical. Whether it's travelogues playing up the barbarity of the natives, or sales pitches trying to convince prospective colonists to travel to the new land of milk and honey, where prosperity is guaranteed. And while there are definitely more differences between the native Irish and the native Americans than there are similarities, there is something so satisfyingly congruent about English colonists in both places hiding behind town walls while the natives ruled the woods and the hills. And I do think the English experience of well-practiced violence and cutthroat diplomacy in Ireland is something which definitely gets exported over to the New World. Okay, so I've had my fun. I've regaled you with my little essay about Irish colonialism. But what influence does Ireland have on Maryland? Well, believe it or not, there are a few connections. One would be the manorial system, a feature of all the Calvert colonies. Religious refuge. We'll be learning something about the religious situation in Ireland, and well, as we'll see, it afforded Calvert some measure of freedom of worship, if only by default. The Calvert's Irish estates also helped bankroll their other colonial ventures. An essential source for today's podcast was an article by James Littleton entitled The Lord's Baltimore in Ireland, and he describes the Calvert's transatlantic string of properties from Yorkshire to Ireland to Fairland to Maryland kind of like it was a multinational corporation. And these Irish manors generated income via rents, the sale of produce and raw materials, or the properties could be sold or used as collateral to secure loans of cash. So in this humble yet tangible way, these Irish estates will help make Maryland possible in its early stages. And once we get into the later 17th century and the early 18th century, immigration from Ireland will ramp up. The first waves will mostly be Anglo-Irish and Scots-Irish, with the Gaelic-Irish immigrating in force by about the first half of the 19th century, and they will leave their marks on the state in a lot of ways. The last few months of research have drawn my attention to some road signs I see every day on my commutes. Baltimore, Dundalk, Carroll, Antrim, Tyrone, Butler, Fitzgerald. All names Marylanders should know, and all names that were brought over via the Emerald Isle. The Irish are just a tile in the grand mosaic that makes up Maryland history and demographics. And this is something I'd kind of like to do for all the other cultures and ethnic components along with the English. I'd like to do a bit of a deep dive on Native American, African, German, Jewish, Polish, Greek, Italian, and the many others who have added their own dimensions to Maryland history. Speaking of, we here at A History of Maryland obviously like to take the scenic route through history to stop and smell the roses on our way towards and through the story of this fine state. Part of the reason for this is that I think many Americans just don't appreciate how much history goes into creating their country. And personally, I want as much context as possible, because I want to understand why any of this happened. What were the day-to-day -day inclinations and motivations that drove people to do something as dangerous and stupid as trying to colonize a bunch of marshes along the coasts of the Chesapeake? That said, I realize this approach is not for everyone. You just want to learn about Maryland history. 
and you don't want to have to be put into a cryogenically suspended state of animation just to be able to survive long enough to hear the next episode. I hear you, loud and clear. And I've got good news. What makes the podcasting medium so awesome is that there are always new options popping up. And one I can heartily recommend is Rejects and Revolutionaries, The Origins of America by Sarah Tonksavala. It's a narrative history of America. So far, she's done all the colonies up to about the brink of the English Civil War, including six episodes on the province of Maryland. Her show is shockingly in-depth for being just 20 to 30 minutes an episode. And get this, there are new episodes every week. I'll never understand how real podcasters pull it off week after week. I can only assume they're using some form of dark sorcery to bend time or something. Anyway, Rejects and Revolutionaries by Sarah Tonksavala. Please check it out. Okay, we are now about to transition to today's actual episode. And it will be a full one, the longest one yet. And, well, fairly dense. So this might be a good place for you to hit the pause button and give your brain a break from my incessant prattling. You can always come back later with fresh ears and a rejuvenated yearning for knowledge. I'll be here. But if you like your podcast long form, or if you're just a glutton for punishment, please come with me now as we follow our protagonist west across the sea to Ireland. Sir George Calvert has a long history with Ireland, at least in terms of royal politics. Most histories connect him with the position of Clerk of the Crown for Connacht in 1606 and as part of a royal commission to Dublin in 1613. We're going to scratch a little deeper on those little historical footnotes a little later to see what these jobs actually entailed. But either way, through his positions in the English court and privy council, Calvert would have been immersed daily in the goings-on of official royal policy there. As we talked about briefly in episode 2.1, this policy would mostly be one of colonization and sweeping attempts to bring Ireland to heel before royal authority. King James is trying to pacify the island by changing its very culture and demographics. The least subtle expression of this policy could be found in the plantations, which were essentially British colonies in Ireland. The most famous, or infamous, depending on your view, being the Ulster plantations, which form the demographic and political seedbed for today's Northern Ireland. These plantations weren't born out of the blue. They weren't part of some kind of singular invasion. The plantations are all part of a long chain of successes and failures in royal policy, stretching back over the previous century. So let's dial back, just for a minute, to when Henry VIII took the throne in 1509. At that point, the English crown had already been knee-deep in Irish politics for over three centuries. English kings had been the nominal lords of Ireland with the backing of the Pope since the days of King Henry II in the 1170s. There had been sporadic attempts by English kings to get a firmer grip on Ireland since that time, but by and large, the English had their own problems closer to home, and had ruled at a relative distance through long-established local kinship-based power structures. The little direct royal authority and rule of English common law that did exist in Ireland had coalesced in some of the port towns and around Dublin, and the area immediately surrounding Dublin, on the east coast of the island. This area is known as the Pale named after a defensive wall or palisade. And yes, this is where we get the euphemisms within the pale or beyond the pale. As in, everything outside of the pale was this wild, lawless, uncivilized Irish backwoods where anything goes. 
So the phrase evolved in English to denote behavior that was beyond acceptable norms for civilized folk. Beyond the Pale, especially in the neighboring eastern and southern regions of Ireland, the population was mostly Gaelic. But control of the land and political power was mostly in the hands of those old families who could trace their lineage back to the 12th century and the original Norman invasions of Ireland. The Normans, of course, being those French-fried Vikings from Normandy who were busily carving out lands and kingdoms for themselves in France, Sicily, and southern Italy, who most famously conquered England in 1066, as well as portions of Wales a little later. Some of these English and Welsh Norman lords were invited into Ireland by a deposed Irish king of Leinster. He wanted to use them to help him get his throne back. But this was like introducing cats into Australia. The Normans were nature's perfect killing machine at this point. At least in Western Europe, they haven't met the Mongols yet. But they were top of that league when it came to waging war. And they immediately set about getting involved in local power struggles and carving up their own little fiefdoms in Ireland. And the native Irish just didn't have an answer to them. Few people did. So some of these native Gaelic Irish chieftains appealed to King Henry II of England. These Norman barons running amok in Ireland were his vassals and subjects. Could he please tug the leash on them? And happily enough, Henry II wanted to tug the leash on these barons. He didn't want them getting too powerful and independent and forgetting who was really in charge. And then there was religion. Henry was in hot water with the Pope thanks to a few of his knights murdering Archbishop Thomas Becket. And he was probably trying to win some brownie points back with the pontiff in Rome. The Roman Catholic Church and Ireland's Celtic Catholic Church had been disputing proper religious practices since the early Dark Ages. And Henry II was likely bringing the true Roman way, by sword point if necessary, to the notoriously independent and backward Celtic Irish Catholic Church. So Henry II rolls over to Ireland in force in 1171 and invites all of the Norman lords and Gaelic kings and chieftains to submit to him and his protection. Most do. And here is where England first becomes entwined politically with Ireland. And here is where a ruling class of Norman lords, with an independent streak a mile wide, assume effective control over about half the island. By our point in the narrative, their descendants still hold plenty of political power, and will come to be referred to as the Old English. But you might also see them referred to as Anglo-Irish, Anglo-Norman, Hiberno-Norman, or Mixed Irish, depending on the specific point of historical time and place you're in, and the general ratio of English to Gaelic in the family mix. These old English families have been in Ireland for over four centuries, which is more than enough time for their culture and politics to evolve differently than their England English cousins. Some would mix into the local native populations and be Gaelicized, becoming more Irish than the Irish. Others courted the New English, living within the Pale and around Dublin, or along the coastal ports. Old English families were still major landholders there. But in a lot of cases, the Old English retained their own mixed culture with their own political ambitions and agendas for Ireland. And this always made them something of a wild card for English kings and queens in regards to loyalty. Further beyond the Pale, much of the North, the Midlands, the West, and Southwest of Ireland, the native Gaelic Irish chieftains and their Gaelic Brehon system of law still held sway. These native Irish were sometimes referred to as the Old Irish, and their political structure was clan-based, not feudal. Clan leadership wasn't inherited. The elder members of these broad, family-based political units would get together and vote on matters of succession, a tradition that's referred to as tanistry. 
which had the potential upside of encouraging a sort of meritocracy and culling out weak rulers, and the potential downside of creating even more factional disputes and infighting than feudalism does, which is saying something. The Gaelic traditions of land distribution and inheritance were based on Gavelkind and Rundale. Gavelkind involves existing land being divided up equally amongst inheritors, usually all the male children, but in this case it might be other members of the clan. So the stewardship of the land would be broken up into smaller and smaller parcels, generation after generation, and the parcels could be rotated amongst other members of the clan depending on who was in charge. And for your poorer sort, there was the Rundale system of common land, leased simultaneously by multiple people, all based around the nucleus of a village. So there was a bit of farming, but the native Irish culture also relied heavily on herding, mostly cattle, and could lead almost semi-nomadic lives as a result. And this factor in Irish culture, almost more than anything else, just scandalized the English. How do you control and tax a populace who just won't stay still? No, that was simply not cricket. You might even say it was sticky wicket. And don't even get King James started about the Irish tendency to hitch their plows to horses' tails. Not only was this cruel and barbarous, it was totally inefficient. And James would use it as a sort of quintessential example of why it was so important for the British to come in and civilize these savages. For a sense of contextual perspective, James was mostly fine with popular British animal blood sports like bear baiting, just not on Sundays, okay? The English brought very different traditions to Ireland. Inheritance was based on primogeniture, where the eldest son inherits all of the family land, thus keeping the estates together from generation to generation. These estates were usually run as a manor, and the manorial system is one we've heard a bit about and we'll be hearing a lot more about in the history of Maryland. The manorial system is essentially a feudal construct. The manor is run by a lord, and worked by peasants and artisans and craftsmen who usually have some kind of binding contract of service with the Lord, who in turn is supposed to protect them and provide for them to some degree. Manors were self-contained units, usually run like businesses to pay for themselves. They even had their own civil courts. And in Ireland, they'd often be fortresses, because as we'll delve a bit more into, raiding, brigandry, and violent political unrest were relatively frequent occurrences. The English would also control and build most of the towns in Ireland, and they'd also introduce and promote a money economy. The native Irish still relied heavily on barter, service, and payment in kind. Now add to this mix different languages, styles of dress, and infinite minor ethnic dissimilarities, and there's a big culture gap that makes it hard for England to easily assume political control over the island and its people. In fact, throughout the 1400s, it's the Gaelic side of this cultural mix that is ascendant. During this period, Gaelic chiefs will take back some of their lands. And this is also the period where many old English families marry into Gaelic ones. And the Hiberno-Norman culture and law will evolve in a more Gaelic direction. This era is sometimes seen as a new golden age for Irish culture. And the direct authority of the English crown is largely muted, especially beyond the pale. Richard II's bid to get a firmer grasp on Ireland fails. He's deposed, replaced, and probably murdered by Henry IV. Henry IV gets all tied up with baronial revolts and Welsh revolts. He doesn't have time for Ireland. Henry V is busy fighting in France. The madness of Henry VI helps plunge England into the Wars of the Roses. Decades down the road, Henry VII is the eventual winner, 
and he's too busy holding on to what he's won to bother too much with Ireland, with one glaring exception being the enactment of Poyning's Law. This required any potential Irish parliaments to submit proposed legislation to the Lord Deputy and to the King before being allowed to vote on it, and it would be a big bone of contention for the Irish, Catholic and Protestant, for centuries to come. But relatively speaking, during much of the 15th century, Ireland has been left to its own devices. When Henry VIII comes to the throne in 1509, the real power in Ireland was in the hands of the Fitzgeralds of Kildare, a Gaelicized Old English dynasty which maintained a loose hegemony over much of the island through a very complex web of kinship relations and overlordships, and through their personal army. The head of the Fitzgerald family was the royally appointed Lord Deputy of Ireland. Essentially, he's the Viceroy, or King's Proxy in Ireland, who holds all the real power in the name of the King. But by the 1530s, Henry VIII and his ministers are well into the policy of centralizing power. He wants the nobility kept around as royal servants and folded into his state bureaucracy. What he doesn't want is a bunch of guys running around with private armies being flaky and coy about just who it is they're loyal to. He's already been doing things like dismantling the lingering autonomy of the county's palatine in England. And before long, he's looking over to Ireland with similar goals. We all know Henry VIII broke from Rome and created a Church of England with the king as the head of the church. This is what we've been referring to anachronistically as Anglicanism throughout this podcast. Well, he's going to create a parallel Church of Ireland, but the Reformation will take a very different course in Ireland, and we'll talk more about that a bit later. On the political side of things, Henry didn't trust the Fitzgeralds, so he begins to promote the Fitzgeralds' local rivals, the Butler family. And the head of the Fitzgeralds, Silken Thomas, goes into rebellion and loses both the rebellion and his head. And this is part of a pattern in Irish history. The Irish go into rebellion, be they factions of Old English or Gaelic or some alliance between the two. They fail at said rebellion, and as a consequence, England seizes more Irish land and tighten their grip on power. The English introduce new policies to keep another rebellion from happening, and said policies, as often as not, eventually help cause the next rebellion. Repeat for centuries. Henry VIII now begins a process to exert more direct control over the island and institutes a policy known as surrender and regrant, wherein all the Irish landholding elite were to formally surrender their lands to Henry. Then the king would grant those same lands back to said landowners. This would officially make these folk lords of King Henry's realm, with all the benefits and protections and obligations that that entailed. No doubt, most of the Irish elites just shrugged and went about the task of signing papers and kissing royal hands. Throughout Irish history, powerful men were always bending the knee to more powerful men. It's just the way things worked. You recognized them as the regional bigwig, you offered up some of your clansmen to fight in their armies, and things stayed relatively peaceful and you were mostly left alone to run things as you saw fit in your own backyard. These relationships were very fluid, and the deals were always negotiable down the road. But you can be sure that's not how Henry thought of it. He wanted the Irish to think of him as their own king, in a very real and legally binding sense. In fact, in 1542, Henry would dump that whole charade about being the Lord of Ireland and declare it a kingdom, his kingdom. Up until then, the Pope had kept English kings from making that distinction, but Henry had dumped the Pope, and the Irish people were now officially his subjects, whether they knew it or not. 
The whole point of surrender and regrant was to make Henry VIII the true source of the land, and thus power. And while this worked in certain areas of Ireland, it suffered from some fundamental flaws. Mainly that it was largely incompatible with a clan-based system. With English-style lords, their lands and titles, like earl and baron, passed directly to the eldest son. Clans didn't work that way. The top men in the clan got together and decided who the next clan chieftain would be. When Henry grants English titles to those chieftains, the other clansmen are made instantly superfluous. And they have no incentive to recognize their second cousin and his immediate family as the people who control the clan and its lands from now until eternity. Add to this more direct forms of control from England and the new religious divide, and there were a lot of people instantly opposed to the new regime. For every Irish lord brought into the English fold, there'd be another who wanted no part of it. So Ireland will not be fully tamed or controlled by Henry VIII. Throughout the rest of the Tudor era, the pattern of failed revolt and land seizure will play out over and over. And it's not long before it dawns on English kings and queens that in order to pacify Ireland under royal authority, they'll need to fill it with more English people. The ball would technically start rolling under young Edward VI's short reign. Ironically enough, though, the first proper English plantations in Ireland are begun by Catholic Queen Mary in 1556. But despite Mary reconciling England with Rome, she wouldn't be giving up the title of Queen of Ireland. And awkwardly, the Pope had to make like he was okay with this for the sake of bringing England back into the fold. The O'Moores and O'Connors of Offaly and Leash were constantly thorns in the side of the English living within the Pale. So the English crown seized their lands outright and renamed them King's County and Queen's County, respectively, after Queen Mary and her hubby, King Philip II of Spain. And this creates the general template for what a plantation is supposed to be. These lands are now royal lands, granted out to loyal servants of the crown. They are to be populated with English servants and tenants who bring English language, culture, and farming techniques. No mixing marriage-wise with the locals is allowed. That's how many of the old English became Gaelicized, and now we can't trust them as far as we can spit them. Oh, and you might want to bring a gun and build your house like a fortress because the former landholders probably want to slit your throats. And built into this template were all the glitches which lead to failure for most of the plantations. They just couldn't get the English to come over to Ireland in the numbers required to make this run properly. To be sure, the English lords wanted those Irish lands and that rent money, but most didn't want to live there. They wanted to be back in London near the royal court where the action was. The laboring classes, as far as they had any choice, we're just fine toiling their lives away in English manners, thank you very much. Ireland was a bit too distant and dangerous to be doing even more of the exact same work on. A typical scheme was to grant the land to soldiers as payment for their services, which on paper is a win-win for the crown. They can pay off the army and populate the plantations with guys who knew how to handle themselves. But no one knew better than those soldiers just how exposed they and their families were, huddled in their quaint little farmsteads out in the scenic Irish countryside. The O'Moores and the O'Connors were still out there, up in the hills and in the woods, basically running an insurgency in their old lands and terrorizing the colonists. So in a lot of cases, it was just easier to sell off your plots and walk away with your skin intact. The reign of Queen Elizabeth would see a general uptick in the levels of nastiness in Ireland. The English state religion swings definitively back to Protestantism, 
Spain is once again the enemy, and Catholic Ireland is once again viewed as a massive national security risk. Throughout the 1560s, 70s, and 80s, the new Lord Deputies of Ireland, guys like Sir Henry Sidney and Lord Grey de Wilton, implemented some very harsh policies and militant political maneuvers against many of the most powerful Irish lords and chieftains, both Old English and Gaelic, in a general effort to break their power. They wanted total submission to the crown and to English common law, and to generally do what centralizing states do to monopolize force. They wanted to dismantle the private armies and competing systems of law and fealty found throughout the island, and set themselves up as the one true authority. As we've alluded to earlier, these conflicts in Ireland are where many of the great explorers and colonizers of the Elizabethan age make their bones. Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh, Humphrey Gilbert, they'll all be there, and they'll each be implicated in at least one of the great massacres that have come down through us in Irish history. Especially Humphrey Gilbert, he just comes off as a straight-up psychopath, at least from the Irish perspective. There is still a medieval aspect to warfare at this time, and I ain't talking about chivalry. Especially whenever there is any whiff of treason, heresy, and social or cultural inferiority. And from the English perspective, Ireland had all three. We're still in an age of surrounding your camps and towns with the heads of your enemies on spikes. It is still a prevailing military strategy to specifically target non-combatants in order to prove to them that their leaders can't protect them. Inviting local leaders and their families to a peace conference, and then locking the gates behind them and murdering all of them, was still part of the diplomatic playbook. And in its own little ways, you can see this mentality exported to England's North American colonies within a few decades. Like when settlers from Jamestown are burning Powhatan fields and villages as a defensive measure. Or like when Miles Standish finds out about an Indian plot to kill the English, so he lures several of the supposed conspirators into a house under peaceful pretensions and then kills them setting Widow Womet's head upon a palisade for all to see as a warning. These sort of actions were not necessarily beyond the pale for the English at the time. Within the previous 50 years, they did plenty of the like in Ireland. In both the Americas and Ireland, the English were an outside power coming into a pre-existing political landscape, with a bunch of competing tribes or clans who each had generations worth of previous connections or animosities with each other and the English were often able to benefit from and exploit these divisions. In Ireland, it's these local loyalties and rivalries between clans, lords, and chieftains that were really the engine of many of the broader conflicts. These chiefs and lords each packed their own private bands of armed men. Some of the more powerful ones could rely on hundreds, even a few thousand loyal fighting men. And these were either foreign mercenaries, often Scottish gales like the Galloglasses or the Redshanks, or the local Irish variety of the warrior class that the lords fed and doled land out to in return for fealty and military service. And these fighting men were always valued because there was always some turf war, protection racket, or succession crises going on at any given time in Ireland. Now what the English crown ultimately wanted was to eliminate this Irish warrior class, to disarm these Irish lords, and to get them under a central authority. But they didn't have the strength to do this all at once, so it was a piecemeal process in different parts of the island over many decades. When one clan or lord got too powerful, English authorities would just back a rival family or a rival claimant to the lordship within the family. And when that Irish chief or lord became too powerful, thanks to the gravy train of English patronage, 
the English would flip on them, and they'd become the target. Divide and Conquer 101. A good example of all these factors at play would be the First and Second Desmond Rebellions, which each broke out on either side of the 1570s. It was sparked by the continued rivalry between the Butlers and the Fitzgeralds. The Earl of Ormond was head of the Butlers. The Earl of Desmond was head of the Munster branch of the Fitzgeralds. And they will do what powerful Irish lords have done for ages. They kick off a turf war over which big tough Irish lord gets to collect taxes from a smaller, slightly less tough Irish lord. But times they were a-changin'. Queen Elizabeth was Queen of Ireland, thank you very much, and she will intercede in her royal capacity as the fair and even-handed arbiter of justice within her kingdom of Ireland. She'd call both earls to England to answer for the breach of the peace, and then she'd just side with her cousin and childhood friend, the Earl of Ormond. Ormond would go free, while Desmond and his brother would be charged with treason, thrown in the tower, and fined the redonkulous sum of 20,000 pounds. For the Fitzgeralds back in Munster, they could see the fix was in against them, and they'd rebel. The English crown had sided with the butlers, so the Fitzgeralds would attack the English and their allies in Munster. And the rebellion would be joined by other Munster clans, leery of English attempts to demilitarize the province. And it would even be joined by two of the Earl of Ormond's brothers, because, you know, you can't have a proper Irish conflict without having to fight someone from your own family. There would be two such Desmond rebellions within 10 years of each other, and they would be exceedingly brutal affairs, especially the Second Rebellion, which had a broader scope and involved Spain and the Pope coming in on the rebel side. They were scorched earth conflicts, with the rebels sacking and demolishing towns, while the English and her Irish allies indiscriminately burned fields and homes, killed cattle, and attacked Irish non-combatants, because these were all the things which fed, sheltered, and funded the rebels. And a cycle of famine and then plague would kill tens of thousands, even after the rebellion was technically over. And it's partly because of this depopulation of the Irish in Munster that the English government decided on a policy of colonization there. The rebel lands and titles had been attainted, which meant they had been stripped and were in possession of the crown. And the most ambitious plantation of Ireland to date was planned. And I mean, of course, the Munster Plantation. I've found that over the last few years, I like a good college thesis to use for research material. You can often find a bunch floating around for free online, and they tend to be hyper-granular to the extreme. I mean, super in-depth. And I read about half of Michael McCarthy Murrow's work, The Munster Plantation, 1583 to 1641, for this segment. It's 400 pages long, just about the Munster Plantation. And there are all sorts of important and fascinating aspects I should be talking about. But the thing I was consistently distracted by was just how bureaucratic and litigious the process of plantation and colonization could be. I guess I always thought of it as just, you know, plant the flag, chase off the natives, and start fencing off your free new property. But there are so many legal angles and obstacles to doling out land on that scale. So many special interests and layers of government who all have their own agendas and their own lawyers. Just surveying the land to determine the value could take months or years. And all of the planning demanded some level of communication and cooperation between the surveyors, the provincial presidents, the Lord Deputy of Ireland, the Irish Parliament, the English Parliament, the Privy Council, on up to the Crown. Each riven with factions who are all trying to influence the courts, the councils, and the commissions in their favor. 
and this is true throughout the colonial period. The Maryland colony will face just as many existential crises in London courtrooms as they'll face from disease, native attacks, or Puritan revolts. This may be even more true for the Munster Plantation, because unlike a lot of colonial ventures, it would be planned and controlled specifically by the English government. It wasn't handed off to a joint stock company or a proprietor. Instead, the government would divvy up the seized land into 12,000 acre plots and then recruit men of means as subcontractors, whose job it was to fill these plots strictly with English and Welsh settlers. These men of means were called undertakers, because they agreed to undertake the responsibility of meeting government demands for the plantations. In return, they got a bunch of dirt-cheap land and all sorts of economic inducements, like free trade rights with any friendly country, and tax and duty-free exports for a certain period of years. And so, of course, it turns into a series of political and legal battles over who'd get to be an undertaker. And parcels of land would go around the courts and councils like musical chairs. There are even examples of undertakers shipping settlers over to Munster, only to have to ship them back because someone decided they weren't the undertakers there anymore. England's Irish allies would have to get their cut, and rebels who surrendered to the English before the end of the rebellion fought to keep their lands, and usually won. So it's all a bit of a bonanza, and no one is really sure if they're secure in their new titles. So the Munster Plantation tends to get viewed as a failure. The aim was to settle 15,000 English in the province. They maybe settled 4,000. There weren't enough English to do the labor, so the English often used Irish laborers and tenants, which defeated the whole purpose of the plantation. The plantation plots weren't consolidated into blocks for easy defense. They were spread out and surrounded by Irish holdings. There was supposed to be a defense scheme where planters would each fund a militiamen for the protection of the plantations, but the system broke down after several years. Also, the land they'd taken charge of was still mostly a wasteland after the Desmond rebellions, so it would take some time to make them productive again. After years of work, some English settlers would manage to start turning a penny on the land. Just in time for the next great Irish conflict, the Nine Years' War. Once that rebellion spread to Munster, the English out in the countryside were easy pickings, and the plantation was mostly destroyed. Now what often gets left out of plantation histories is that after the Nine Years' War, the Munster plantation would be reconstituted and would be way more successful than the first go-around. They tend to focus on the failures of the earlier plantation because that's where the lessons were learned that would be applied to the next major plantation. The Ulster Plantation. Historically, Ulster, the north and northeast portion of Ireland, was one of the core regions of Gaelic resistance to the English. It was a tough nut for England to crack, both politically and geographically, and the region would come under the increasing scrutiny of the crown in the latter years of Elizabeth's reign. There had already been a few failed attempts at colonization in Ulster, and the usual divide-and-conquer tactics were in full effect, with the English taking different sides in the merry-go-round of conflicts between the O'Neills, the O'Donnells, and the MacDonalds, along with others. By the late 1580s, Elizabeth's man in Ulster was Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone. Hugh was literally born into the inner clan politics that the English sought to exploit in order to break the power of the Irish chieftains. His father was murdered in a dispute over who would be the head of the O'Neills. And young Hugh, whose life was potentially in danger from his own extended family, was taken in by the English as a ward of the state. 
and he was raised within the pale and with a sufficient understanding of the ways and the manners of the English court. He would fight on the English side in the Second Desmond Rebellion and be trusted with maintaining a small army in order to protect the pale from enemies in Ulster. But Hugh wasn't stupid. He soon noticed and understood that his faithful service to the crown wasn't going to buy him the traditional independent authority he felt entitled to. By the early 1590s, the English are tightening their grip in Ulster and appointing a provincial president, a direct threat to the jurisdiction of any Irish chief or lord in Ulster. And by 1595, the Earl of Tyrone will end up joining and leading a rebellion that had already kicked off a few years earlier. It became known as Tyrone's Rebellion or the Nine Years' War. My previous lengthy description of this war is something I've had to clip for time. Suffice to say, after years of rebel victories, and despite, or more likely because of, the intervention of a Spanish expeditionary force, the rebel forces ended up getting trounced decisively by the English and their allies at the Battle of Kinsale in 1601. After this, the rebellion began to unravel. Rebel leaders began to submit to the crown, and some vicious punitive raids would follow O'Neill as he fled back into Ulster. O'Neill would himself submit to the Queen in March 1603, and famously, no one had bothered to tell him that she had actually died a few days before. Over 100,000 would die as a result of this conflict, many of them non-combatants caught in the middle of famine-inducing scorched-earth tactics. It was the largest English military operation of the entire Elizabethan era, so it was kind of a big deal. So you might expect the next thing to happen would be Hugh and his pals being hung, drawn, and quartered. Certainly many English who had spent years fighting him thought so. But it's not what happened. When King James assumes the throne of England, he pardons Hugh O'Neill and returns him to his lands and his earldom. He also raises Rory O'Donnell to the new Earl of Tyrconnell. Other surviving rebels and chieftains are also restored to their lands. If it seems a bit kooky for James to be that magnanimous in victory, Remember, he's desperately trying to end all of the long and expensive wars Elizabeth had been engaged in. And on the ground, the reality wasn't so magnanimous. Much of Ireland was under martial law, and grizzled English officers generally had carte blanche to dish out all sorts of retribution on those they'd believed to have been involved in aiding the revolt. The earls and the chiefs might have been pardoned, but there wasn't a limit on the number of masterless men you could string up. The intended target was that Irish warrior class. But most Irish were masterless tenants at will, and they could easily be caught up in dragnets unless they had someone powerful to speak for them. Many Irish, who may or may not have had anything to do with the rebellion, would hang long after those pardons were issued. Certainly, I think the earls in Ulster must have been a little suspicious and fearful that no one had really forgiven or forgotten that you know, massive decade-long bloody revolt they had just been involved in, and the English were just biding their time to strike. So O'Neill and O'Donnell felt they had to scramble to regain a power base, and they'd spend the next couple of the years trying to consolidate their lands, money, and power by forcing subject chieftains and freeholders to surrender their land to the earls. In 1605, Hugh O'Neill will go so far as to claim just about all of the counties Tyrone, Derry, and Armagh. And English officials weren't about to let that stand and started actively blocking him in the courts. The current Lord Deputy of Ireland, Sir Arthur Chichester, suddenly became very concerned about the plight of the humblest clansmen. He'd declare an end of serfdom and begin enforcing the rights of certain freeholders and lesser chieftains to the lands that the earls had wrested from them. And the irony of all this will become clear momentarily. 
Just know that it has very little to do with some sort of progressive social reform and everything to do with undercutting O'Neill's power and income. Possibly seeing the writing on the wall, possibly feeling a little exposed and defenseless when he was invited or summoned by James to go to London in 1607, O'Neill would grab what he could and bolt from Ireland, along with O'Donnell and about 90 followers, heading for the safer environs of the European continent. And this will become known to history as the Flight of the Earls. And it is largely seen as the symbolic end of traditional Gaelic lordship in Ireland. To James, their flight proved they were traitors. No doubt they had buggered off to Spain in order to come back at the head of an army. So he wasted little time snatching their lands. Before he'd even decided what to do with the land, there'd be another rebellion in Ulster. This time headed by Caer O'Doherty, who'd been demonstrably loyal to the English throughout his life. He'd even headed the Irish jury that had just declared O'Neill and O'Donnell traitors. Most sources suggest O'Doherty had been set up and bullied by the new English governor of Derry and the new Anglican bishop of Derry, both of whom had been eyeing up his lands. He had been physically struck, jailed, harassed, and falsely accused until he was driven to revenge. The rebellion was poorly planned and executed, and O'Doherty got himself shot in the head fairly quickly, and the whole mess was easily put down. But it would give the English all the pretext they needed to go full throttle on plans for a massive plantation in Ulster. Officials and judges who just months before had been promising Irish freeholders their right to the land in order to undermine the earls, now suddenly flipped on the subject. No, the earls had actually owned most of the land themselves, and, well, they're traitors, so sorry, it all belongs to the crown. Rebels involved in O'Doherty's rebellion were also attainted, so were some of their families who weren't technically involved. More land would be brought into the plantation with a variety of court decisions, which overtly contradicted previous court decisions, all based on acts of attainder dating from Elizabeth's reign. Any inheritance of land through the Irish tradition of Gavelkind was subject to being snatched now even if the titles had been implicitly accepted for decades before. Vast swathes of six Ulster counties would come into the Crown's hands this way. Also, to the east in counties Down and Antrim, private colonization efforts were already underway by two Scottish lords who were bringing over Scottish settlers and who are either buying off or chasing off the local landholders. Thus begins the Ulster Plantations a sweeping bit of imperial social engineering that would eventually change the ethnic, religious, and legal makeup of what had once been the most fiercely independent province in Ireland. And that, of course, was the whole point. Like most colonial ventures, this is all wrapped up in the rhetoric of civilizing a wild country and taming a bunch of savages for their own good. And this time, James would attempt to learn from the mistakes of some of the previous plantations. There would be a diversification in the ways the plantation would be funded, settled, and overseen. According to the plan, there were undertakers, just like in Munster, tasked with bringing over English settlers. But their plots wouldn't be quite so huge and so dispersed. Also, no native Irish tenants or landowners on the undertaker's land. We mean it this time. Private investors like the trade guilds in London were charged with building new walled towns, which were to be focal points of defense, administration, and commerce. Native Irish were only allowed in during the day to conduct business. Then they had to leave and the gates were closed. Other recipients of plantation lands were the servitors. Soldiers and officials granted relatively smaller plots on which the native Irish were allowed to be tenants. The Church of Ireland would get their cut of the land, and finally about a quarter of the land was reserved for loyal Gaelic Irish chiefs and gentry. Like all of the plantations, Ulster didn't quite work out exactly as planned or advertised. 
British settlers did not come over in the sort of numbers required to do the work, and once again, native Irish tenants were required for labor. These native Irish were required to pay double the rents of British tenants. And while this was probably designed to dissuade the Irish from settling in English lands, it created a sort of inverse incentive. English landholders could make more in rents using Irish labor. And as far as the Irish, they either felt like they had no choice, or on occasion, they felt more secure with English landlords than with Irish chiefs. The English demanded high rents, but Irish landlords could actually be worse, and the chiefs and their retainers could be notoriously arbitrary in their demands for food and drink and labor for the more humble clansmen. And that's a point a lot of English histories of Ireland throughout the ages are quick to make. Ireland wasn't all rainbows and gumdrop smiles before the English showed up. If you had to sum up Ireland's previous political history in 10 words or less, I'd personally go with an endless series of blood feuds and cattle raids. The rosy-hued remembrances of Gaelic Ireland as some sort of freetopia may approach the truth for their political elites and their bards, but they thrived off of violence and exploited their underclasses along with the best of them. But I don't imagine that you're going to convince many Irish to think they have anything to be thankful to the British for. From their perspective, the Gaelic chiefs might have been nothing but a bunch of glorified thugs and exploiters, but they were our glorified thugs and exploiters. We didn't need your foreign civilization invading here and giving us brand new examples of how to make life miserable. And King James, intentionally or not, will be doing just that. Because James's litigious land grabs are just beginning. And though they won't be on the scale of Ulster, their rationale will be even more dubious. And they'll sow some tragic seeds. Hopefully with this little political overview, I've been able to give you a sense of the piecemeal and evolutionary nature of English policy in Ireland up to this point. How dynastic interests, security interests, and economic interests led to more and more British involvement on the island, until the vague and barely enforceable notions of English overlordship became outright colonialism and domination. I also wanted to paint a setting in which to drop George Calvert, because he's about to enter the picture. And as usual, while he isn't the biggest name in English history, he always seems to be somewhere in the middle of what's going on. But before we explore his time in Ireland, there's one more huge piece of the contextual puzzle we have to fill. So I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about the state of religion in Ireland at the time of Calvert's arrival. Because it's different in a lot of ways from the situation in England, but similar enough that we can use the three basic religious factions we've been using all along. Anglicanism, Puritanism, and Catholicism, with a few tweaks and qualifications. I'll be getting way more into Anglicanism in a later episode, when we talk about King Charles and Archbishop Laud. It's technically an anachronistic term, really a 19th century one, but it's just so darned useful and convenient, and I'm hardly the only one who does it. When we talk about Anglicanism, we're talking about England's Protestant state church, the Church of England, begun by Henry VIII when he split with Rome. From the very outset, there'd be a tug of war within the state church between traditionalists who generally wanted to keep a bit of the structure, pomp, and ceremony of the Catholic Church, and the evangelicals who wanted to move the church in what they saw as a more genuinely Protestant direction. Regardless, the state church would retain an Episcopalian hierarchy and structure, meaning it had bishops and archbishops. And at the tippity top of the church pyramid stood the monarch, not the pope. And when Henry VIII breaks from Rome and declares Ireland to be one of his kingdoms, he creates a Church of Ireland modeled along the same lines as his Church of England. 
and this would be the official state church in Ireland, marching in lockstep with the English crown's policy in Ireland. A majority of the English settlers in Ireland would be Anglican. But the Church of Ireland would not have much success at all in actually converting the Irish. There are many reasons for this, and we'll touch on a few throughout the podcast. But on the most basic level, very few within the state church bothered to even learn the Irish language. And why would they? That kind of defeated the whole point of forcing everyone to speak and act English. But this further handicapped any effort to successfully proselytize the average Irish person, who already viewed the Anglicans as alien and heretical. And even in Protestant histories, the Church of Ireland and its clergy had a poor reputation. The priests are accused of only wanting to preach to English settlers. The bishops are accused of just wanting to sit back and get fat off the tithes. But by the turn of the 17th century, some theologians within the Church of Ireland realized the massive image problem they had with any potential Irish converts. And they try to distance themselves from the Church of England. The New Testament would be translated into Irish, and vernacular Bibles are generally a Protestant thing at this point. The Roman Church read in Latin. So it's a bit of religious terraforming, trying to plant seeds for a genuinely Irish version of Protestantism. They'd invoke the independent old Celtic Church that had existed long before they were forced into conformity with Rome. St. Patrick's more Protestant aspects would be played up. They tried, and mostly failed, to compete for a slice of the Irish identity. The Church of Ireland also had to compete with more puritanical strains of belief. A lot of Protestants were not satisfied with the state church and this hierarchical Episcopalian structure. To them, it's all way too Catholic. A proper church and mode of worship was based on scripture. It came from the source, the Bible. Not from that antichrist in Rome calling himself the Pope. They wanted to strip away the flashy facade, topple the bishops in their hierarchy, and get everything down to a congregational structure, and form a society where everyone is bound together by their covenant with God. Some of these Puritans would be more moderate. They would try to work within the system of the state church to steer it in a more righteous direction. But increasingly, by our point in the narrative and into the 1630s, more and more Puritans will begin to see the state church as unsalvageable. Now, this is all going on in England, so when they colonize Ireland, they'll bring a bit of that along with them. But when we talk about a Puritan faction in Ireland, what we're really talking about are the Scottish settlers bringing over Presbyterianism. For about the last 80 years or so, the Scottish Kirk and Church had been radically reformed Protestant. It was very heavily influenced by Calvinism and was based on a Presbyterian governing model, meaning the church was governed by a representative body of elders, not bishops. But when James VI of Scotland became James I of England, he embraced the Episcopalian model of the English church. That hierarchy of bishops fit into James's absolutist notions about the proper role of the king. The king derived his authority from God, so it only makes sense that the king should be head of the church, with a clerical command structure to impose his will down to the masses. And James would begin the process of exporting bishops back to Scotland, with massive consequences a few decades down the road. And yes, this will be on the test, people. In the short term, some of these Scottish Presbyterian ministers, feeling the government pressure in Scotland, are going to hop over to those predominantly Scottish plantations in Ulster and seek refuge within the Church of Ireland. The Church of Ireland was a hard gig. It was a work in progress, and there were plenty of slots to fill. 
and they were looking for a few good men. So they took these ministers in. Now at this point in the narrative, in the 1620s and 30s, these closet Calvinist ministers were still working within the Irish state church, keeping their heads down to a degree. But after 1641, they dropped the pretense, and Presbyterianism would become a full-blown thing in Ulster. But generally speaking, the hearts and minds of a vast majority of the Irish belonged to the Roman Catholic Church. There were simply many more Catholics there than in England or Scotland. And we're not just talking about the native Gaelic Irish Catholics. Most of the Old English were Catholics as well. They had never really gone along with Henry VIII's break from Rome. A genuinely Irish form of Protestantism had never been allowed the right amount of time or the right conditions to naturally germinate. And so Protestantism would be inextricably associated with the new British colonizers and with the English crown. As early as the 1530s, Henry VIII is installing Anglican archbishops in Dublin, who go about the familiar work of committing religious images and holy relics to the bonfires, who close down the abbeys and the monasteries, and who either seize the land for the Anglican Church of Ireland or divvy it up to the English lords as a form of patronage. Henry passes the same act of supremacy in Ireland that he had in England, and denying this supremacy was still technically tantamount to treason. Tithes and attendance to the Protestant state church would be compulsory, as would be the eventual use of the Book of Common Prayer. But in Ireland, these religious laws and stipulations were only as good as far as you could effectively enforce them. And throughout much of the Tudor period, that basically meant in and around the Pale, or in the English-held towns. Even there, enforcement was, to borrow the word used by Eleanor Hull in her The History of Ireland, spasmodic. Depends when and where you were, who you were, who was in charge, was there a revolt going on? What was the nature of that revolt? Had the king just issued a decree? Did Catholic terrorists in England just try to blow up the king in Parliament? Enforcement of conformity could burn bright for a time, but then things would cool down and settle back into the sort of natural holding pattern. During the reign of the first two Stuart kings, the religious waters in Ireland would be muddied even further, with their ambiguous and often contradictory attitudes towards Catholics. Make no mistake, if King James or King Charles had their wish, the entire Ireland would have been clutched firmly to the bosom of the state church of Ireland, thus firmly under the king's control. And just like English kings and queens before and after, they'd pursue this goal, and try and legally coerce the Irish populace into the English-style state church. This includes the increasingly Presbyterian Scottish populace in Ulster. But at the same time, there were certain political realities on the ground that had to be taken into account, and a juggling act that had to be maintained. The English conquest of Ireland had come piecemeal, with waves of invasions and colonization over centuries. The Stuart kings didn't remotely have the money or military strength to completely dominate the island. So they continued with the old policy of divide and conquer. By the reign of King Charles, it was royal policy to play native Irish Catholics off of old English Irish Catholics, and to play them both off of Irish Protestants. The point of all this was to divide any united opposition against the king's efforts to use Ireland as a cash cow. But this did give lay Catholics in Ireland a little more political leverage than they might have in England. They were still occasionally subject to recusancy fines and certain aspects of the penal laws, wherever it could effectively be enforced. But the full and consistent application of the penal laws won't come into effect until much later in the 17th century, when the British Empire was more firmly in control of Ireland. And the king could be way more open about putting forms of religious tolerance on the negotiating table in Ireland. 
Should the Irish Parliament be able to cobble together a subsidy of, say, £20,000 or so for the crown, the king might just waive recusancy fines for everyone for the next year or so. For continued financial support, the king might perhaps even seriously think about actually starting to consider maybe pondering the subject of possibly legislating some sort of toleration for Catholicism in Ireland. As for the Catholic clergy in Ireland, generally speaking, they had an easier time of it than their brothers in England, especially the further away from the English you went. There are still working Catholic monasteries in some of the more distant reaches of the island. With only a handful of exceptions, the Irish lords, be they Old English or Old Irish, whether they sided with or against the crown, were openly Catholic and attended Mass, and protected Catholic clergy as far as they could. The vast majority of Irish being Catholic meant that the whole culture of ratting out your neighbors for hiding a priest wasn't going to catch on in the same way. Crazily enough, in 1625, there would be even at least one acting Catholic bishop in Ireland, his name was Dr. David Roth. He left Ireland in his youth to attend the Irish Catholic colleges on the continent. He'd eventually graduate from the University of Salamanca with a doctorate in civil and canon law. He'd be ordained in 1600 and spend the next nine years or so in Rome working under the exiled Archbishop of Armagh. He gets sent back to Ireland to be an arbitrator of disputes between secular and regular clergy there. And in 1618, he's appointed the Bishop of Ossory. Now, he had to sneak over to Paris in order to be consecrated, but he snuck back into Ireland in 1621 to perform his duties and write a few ecclesiastical works, which is all fairly remarkable. He was definitely under surveillance by English authorities, but he had family ties with the butlers who protected him. He'd end up working in Ireland for decades, even playing a bit role in the more moderate makeup of the Catholic Confederation in 1642. What we have to thank him for are letters he wrote in 1625, because Bishop David Roth is our one source for Sir George Calvert and his family's arrival in North Wexford in September of that year. As fascinating as Bishop Roth's story is, most of the higher-level Catholic clergy of Ireland were in exile in Rome or Spain or Brussels, and many a Catholic priest and bishop had been martyred in Ireland for the cause of bringing her back to the church. There would be waves of arrest, torture, and execution by English authorities, who viewed the Catholic clergy as treasonous agents of Spain and rabble-rousers of Irish rebellion. And that's fairly true at this time. Prospects for the Roman church might be dismal over in England, but in Ireland, Catholics are a majority, and Protestant authorities don't have total control. There is way more of an effective political bent to the priesthood here. The Roman Church wants Ireland back, and most Catholic Irish want the Protestants checked, subdued, or kicked out altogether. The boots on the ground for the Roman Church were the monks and the religious orders. And as usual, the Jesuits were front and center. This is partly because that's just how the Jesuits rolled. They were hardcore and organized, and they would play their part in inciting and orchestrating Irish rebellions. The Jesuits also just scared the hell out of English authorities, and so they always get top billing in histories. Also, Jesuit becomes a sort of catch-all term for any Catholic clergy working clandestinely against English interests. There were technically way more Franciscans in Ireland than Jesuits, and way more secular priests than either of those orders. And it's funny how far this slightly irrational fear and loathing continued into the historiography. Some of the 19th century Protestant-leaning histories I've read about this period, sources that are relatively reasonable and even-handed about everything else, still get a little kooky about the Jesuits. 
They're still spoken of like they're the Bolshevik Illuminati or something. Together with one calling the Pope. Come in, Pope. This is the Pope. Good news, your holiness. I have secured Ireland for the Roman Church by means of a fiendish web of intrigue. Good. (laughs) (laughs) It's certainly true they were agents of the Counter-Reformation, but so were most Baroque artists and composers. The Catholic clergy definitely backed revolts and promised financial and military aid from foreign powers. But this always ended in defeat and debacle, and yet Catholicism would continue to become more and more central to Irish identity. The problem with blaming the cunning machinations of Catholic priests for the failure of the Reformation in Ireland is that it ignores the more fundamental question of what incentive did the Irish people have to convert to Protestantism? It's being sponsored by an invading, alien, land-grabbing power that was out to destroy Irish culture in order to make subjugation easier. And I don't think we should call it assimilation, because I don't think any sort of equal treatment was on the cards. I can talk all day about the eventual benefits of a money economy, the rule of law, and more productive forms of land use, but when it's done at sword point, and it turns people's lives upside down, well, you know, expect resistance. And one expression of this resistance would be a grassroots strengthening of Catholic practices in Ireland. Protestant efforts to stamp it out only reinforced the old religion. There are a bunch of anecdotes about old dilapidated Catholic church buildings being used as stables for cattle or barracks for Irish troops. That is, until the English tried to enforce conformity. And then the Catholic churches were repaired and services maintained as long as they could be. Just... Be sure to temper all this with the fact that the national Irish identity you might understand today isn't there yet. It's forged over centuries, a process that continues well past our point in the narrative today. Even when you have something like the Nine Years' War that looks a lot like an Irish independence movement and a Catholic crusade, keep in mind that many of those putting down the rebellion are old Irish and old English Catholics, who are taking natural sides in much older local political disputes, and who are operating under notions of fealty to chiefs, lords, and to the crown that are mostly alien to us today. In George Calvert's time, the existence of all of these Catholic English and Old English families didn't necessarily benefit the Gaelic Catholic Irish. English Catholics could be just as involved in the plantation system and going after native Irish lands. Their value to the crown was as patriotic Englishmen. They weren't necessarily there in Ireland for Catholic solidarity. Meanwhile, Protestants might have fairly good relations with their Gaelic Catholic neighbors, depending on the circumstances and where they were located. Kinship ties and local power politics often had more to do with these relationships than any straightforward Catholic-Protestant divide. It's all just a big old social, religious, political gumbo. That will only get more complex when thousands of Scottish Presbyterians get added to the mix up in Ulster, when a massive revolt in Ireland flames up in 1641, and when the English Civil Wars turn the gas on the stove up to high. But for now, I guess I could just say there were worse places Calvert could set up shop for the next few years in regard to his faith and to his family. Alright, so we are now entering the final stage of today's episode. This is the seventh inning stretch. If your brain is mush and I'm just starting to sound like the teacher from the peanuts to you, this might be a good point to take a break. 
Smoke them if you got them. And feel free to make your way to our lobby concession stand. We carry a fine assortment of milk duds, snow caps, and goobers, along with some cone for popping. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go.